Hello and welcome back to Policy Matters, the podcast that examines the connection of Aegon and Transamerica's business strategy with public policy issues at the state, federal, and international levels. My name is Maurice Perkins, head of Aegon's Global Government and Policy Affairs team. In this episode, our colleague Bill Schweigler has a conversation with Olaf Jones at Insurance Europe, the leading advocacy association representing the European insurance industry. Olaf serves as their Deputy Director General for Economics and Finance. He's based in Brussels and responsible for all issues relating to prudential regulation, financial reporting, and international affairs. Olaf started his career as a consultant to the financial services industry with Oliver Wyman and Company, and then spent 15 years in the industry working at large multinational insurance firms, including a role as Group Chief Risk Officer. I've had the pleasure of working with Olaf since my start at Aegon, including a memorable time off-roading in the sand dunes in the Arabian Peninsula after some long days at an insurance conference back in 2019. It's our privilege to host Olaf today for this podcast and hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks again. Olaf Jones, welcome to Policy Matters and thank you for joining us today from Brussels. I think many of our listeners know that Transamerica is part of the Aegon Group, a very significant part of that group. And because Aegon is based in the Netherlands, there are some elements of Dutch and European regulation that impact Transamerica because they apply to the Aegon group, group-wide. And that means that Transamerica has an interest in European insurance regulatory developments. All of you are an advocate for the European industry, so you're very, very close to many of these developments and how the European industry as a whole is thinking about them. But I want to start by asking you about Insurance Europe as a pan-European trade association. What I think makes Insurance Europe unique is that your members are not individual insurance companies, but they're national trades like the Dutch Insurance Association and the French Association and so on. So I think what that means is that there's some sort of impact on Insurance Europe by the geopolitical developments within the European continent. And two really come to my mind. First being Brexit and second, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. How have these developments impacted Insurance Europe? First of all, thanks, Bill, for this opportunity to have this discussion with you. And, and we're also very interested in, in what's happening uh, around the world and particularly in, in the States. So uh, we welcome these interactions and a chance to update you on what's going on in Europe. But indeed, Insurance Europe is a federation of, of federations. Uh, we actually have 36 members most of which, of course, are in the EU, but some outside the EU, including, for example, the UK, Switzerland and, and Norway. And so, indeed, we're, we're very much affected by European events, global events. And, and, and you've named, obviously, two very important ones. First of all, Brexit, which I have to claim from my own point of view, I found as a, a big disappointment that that's the way things went. But in terms of real impact on, on, on Insurance Europe and our members, I, I think the impact was relatively little. I mean, if you compare it to, for example, the banking sector, the insurance sector tends to be set up with subsidiaries uh, in the different markets they operate in. And so those subsidiaries can continue to operate, whether they're owned by a UK operation or, or, or a European operation working in the UK. There were some initial costs needing some restructuring needed. Some companies had to set up operations in one or either of the jurisdictions. So there was some frustration in those costs. But generally, the, the total impact is, is relatively different. Obviously, I think the, the cross-border activity that went on is now no longer going on. But in terms of things like reinsurance, that continues across borders and indeed across the world. So on that side, it's relatively limited. I think when it comes to, to what's happening in Ukraine, I, I think that's obviously a much bigger issue. You know, we, we really regret these uh, terrible events. 
And I think that it has an effect on, on Europe in a number of ways and European insurers. I think maybe first I'll, I'll talk a bit about the sort of the business impact uh, that's affecting the companies of our members and, and then maybe move on to, to sort of more general insurance Europe issues. Now, I think there's four types of, of impact. There's the, the direct impact on those companies which are operating in Ukraine and Russia. And because of the border, a number of our, our European insurance group had quite significant operations. In fact, there was an insurance group which was a leading insurer in Ukraine. Now, obviously, these companies have direct business impact. Those businesses have been generally stopped operating. Uh, European groups have exited in general their Russian operations. But of course, the priority for those that had businesses in, in Ukraine has really been about the staff about looking after staff, trying to help those that have left, support them in, in uh, outside of Ukraine. And it's those who are staying, they've, they've done what they can in terms of support within Ukraine, in terms of help and uh, uh, supporting charities that are helping work there. But in terms of the, the financial impact, it's relatively little. It's, it's a lot in euro terms, but it's very manageable because it's a small part of these businesses. And then we have the direct impact in terms of investments. This can impact any company. In fact, I know some American companies obviously had Russian bonds and other things. But again, the, the total percentage of investments is very small, very manageable. The impact on underwriting is potentially larger for certain specialist insurers, such as those underwriting aviation and, and certain speciality areas. But the extent of that is not yet known. And of course, there is a big concern that at, at some point there could be some significant cyber risk issues impacting insurers directly, but also through their underwriting. But this still remains relatively limited, but uh, is, is a worry. And then finally, we have, of course, the sort of secondary effects, which is the general fallout on inflation, the economic growth, volatility, the cost of living, and how that can impact uh, insurers in many different ways. This is still somewhat uh, sort of limited, but it's being watched closely and, and could be quite significant. Then moving on to Insurance Europe itself, uh, one of our members, we used to have 37 members, we now have 36, because uh, the one of those was the All-Russian Insurance Association. Uh, they weren't a full member, but they were something we called a partner member. And as soon as the war broke out, our members collectively decided that it was no longer appropriate to have that relationship, and that membership was re revoked. Insurance Europe issued a statement on Ukraine highlighting our condemnation of the Russian government actions and our solidarity for the Ukrainian people. And many of our members, as I mentioned before, and insurance companies are taking solidarity initiatives, such as providing direct help uh, in the case of our Polish member, uh, in terms of helping really uh, with refugees very directly, but otherwise supporting charities and, and uh, other other type of ways to help. Uh, let's turn to some of the major initiatives that are underway right now, and and one that is really occupying a lot of resources within Transamerica is. Uh, the implementation of IFRS 17, that was many, many years in development. It's a new accounting standard for insurance contracts. So what it means uh, directly for Aegon is that it will impact the earnings that the company reports and potentially the share price and and perhaps even the some of the strategic business models we operate uh, in the future. So, Olaf, I'm interested in your understanding or your take of what the European industry view of IFRS 17 is at this stage. Is it turning out to be a success? Is it a failure? Somewhere in between? Maybe we don't know yet. I'm interested in your perspectives about that. Well, I think it is definitely too early to, to, to take a judgment there because it's not even implemented yet. The, the, the sort of launch date is in January 2023. So from that date onwards, companies will 
in their first reporting will have to make uh, disclosures in line with IFRS uh, 17 and, by the way, IFRS 9, because uh, we, we have a sort of simultaneous implementation. We, with the insurance industry, got an extra few years to implement IFRS 9 so that we could do these two elements together. IFRS 9 affecting, obviously, the, the assets and IFRS 17, the liabilities. I think this has been a huge project. I mean, uh, I, I, I don't know if you're, you, you've been following it from the I beginning. But it, okay, but it's, yeah, <laughs> Maybe it's, not from the beginning because it well, took 25 years. Exactly. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it is, uh, people think Solvency 2 took a long time, but this was even longer. Um, I think generally the, the feeling was that it, it, it was something that was needed uh, simply because the IFRS 4, which what it replaces, just wasn't was always a sort of stopgap type standard. And, and therefore, there was a, an acceptance that, that we needed to move on from there. I think whether IFRS 17 will meet its, its, its objectives of improving the understanding of investors of our business, of in, in lowering our cost of capital even potentially, making our business more attractive, I think the jury is definitely still out on that. And whether it was worth the, the money is definitely the jury is still out. I mean, I think uh, IFRS uh, 17, I saw one estimate that it's estimated cost across the world between 15 and 20 billion dollars. This is a huge cost. It, it's apparently involved based on this survey, which was carried out by Willis Towers Watson. It's involved the equivalent of 10,000 full-time employees. So I think it, it's a high bar to, to meet in terms of value for money. What it will do, though, is it will provide a lot of new information, especially for those companies outside of Europe, because in Europe, a lot of the type of market value information uh, and economic information is already provided by Solvency 2. So it's adding less. But I think around the world, it definitely adds a lot of transparency. I really think whether or not the, it, it helps people understand the business is, is definitely out. Uh, and I think we'll We'll start getting a sense of that once people start the education process towards the end of this year uh, and obviously in, in when they start reporting next year. But as I said, given the cost, it, it's it's a high bar to, to, to pass. Well, you mentioned another topic that is really interesting to me, and that is Solvency 2. Solvency 2 is the prudential regime for European insurers. And right now, there is a big review of Solvency 2 underway, and uh, Solvency 2 is one of those initiatives that impacts Transamerica because uh, the Aegon Group is subject to it. I want to ask you a couple parts of that review. And, and one element of that review, which is very, very important to Transamerica, and is something called provisional equivalence, and that has a very specific legal meaning in a European context. And then there's something called deduction and aggregation. And kind of boiling it down, what the combination of these two measures means, Transamerica can use U.S. rules under the uh, Solvency II group regime, and that gives us a level playing field in the U.S. market. And so it's a very important set of measures to maintain. And my question for you, Olaf, is are these two measures at risk, either as part of this review or perhaps separately from that in the foreseeable future? I think under this particular review, there, there's no indication that the the ability to to use the uh, the deduction aggregation is at risk. So I think that remains. I think longer term that there are definitely some member states or particularly supervisors that I, I think never particularly liked it. So I think I would say in the future it may be at risk, and maybe that could be linked to the ICS development, whether there's something seen as a as an alternative approach. Uh, but I think given the fact that this 
This solvency review we're going under now is only conducted at most every five years. I think uh, you're safe for a while, <laughs> uh, but uh, I think these sort of things do tend to be looked at because there are a lot of a lot of feeling in Europe. They they like consistency. They like uh, they don't like sort of alternative approaches. And I think from that point of view, that there, there will probably be regular questions of of whether it still is needed. But as you say, it's key to to allowing a level playing field. There is a sort of related problem that that is I think impacts uh, Aegon and 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 uh, your group overall, and that's the fact that they've added a, an extra requirement to do a, a, a currency risk charge at group level. Uh, and this has been slightly improved in the in the version that the Commission put forward compared to before. So it's a bit less onerous, but it still doesn't make full economic sense, and it can have an impact. And so I think that's one area where I know that Avon is is looking at carefully. And the story isn't over yet because we're, we're still in the, in the process of finalizing the review, but that's one area of concern. Well, that's great that you understand our issues uh, maybe better than we do, Olaf. So let me ask you about the industry as a whole, then. What are the major issues for the European industry as a whole? And do you think that what the industry is going to end up with as a result of this review is better for the industry than the, than the current version of Solvency 2? Well, I think just it's worth taking a step back because Solvency 2 has also been one of these huge projects. It was uh, started back in, in, in about, well, 1999, 2000, and, and it took, it took uh, until 2016 to, to be in force. In the middle of that development process, there was a lot of discussion uh, in particular about how to capture the long-term nature and the real economics of insurance. Uh, and it's not easy to capture that. It's, we had the same debates under IFRS 17. You know, how do you capture a business which is, how do you measure on a one-year or, or a regular basis something which is multi-year, if not decades? How do you capture the interaction between assets and liabilities and, and all the risk mitigation, hedging and everything? How do you capture the portfolio effects and the mutualization? Um, and how do you capture the fact that risk is not a side effect of our business? It, it is often the product we're selling. So all of these were challenges with IFRS 17 and, and, and also with Insolvency 2. And they explain a bit why it's, it takes so long to, to develop these, these frameworks. When Insolvency 2 was developed, there was a, a period of testing in, in uh, during the financial crisis. So this was a, a quantitative impact study that was done in in about 2009, and, and it really showed that Solvency 2 framework at the time wasn't working. It was way too volatile and, and wasn't capturing the, the interaction between assets and liabilities. So there was something put in place called a long-term guarantee package, which was meant to capture this sort of interaction and capture the real essence of insurance, long-term insurance. Now, at the time, the insurance industry said, okay, this is absolutely necessary, but it's not going to work. It's not good enough. And we had a choice. Do we try to sort of block Solvency 2 or, or do we sort of let it go? And we decided as an industry that we really liked most of the foundations of Solvency 2. We really liked the risk-based approach. We really liked the, the three pillar, which is sort of recognizing the importance of, of capital, of reporting and of internal risk management. And so we, we decided to, that we should go ahead. Obviously, it wasn't only in our hands, but as an industry, we supported going ahead. In a bright path, because there was this solvency two review due in in, in two thousand twenty, and that's now been uh, still in process. So, what do we want out of the solvency two review? And there, we really say we need to finish the work done. So, we really need to improve the way solvency two treats our long term business. And this has been a discussion, and we know from in other markets, it's one of the concerns, one of the reasons why, although a lot of markets around the world like a lot about solvency two, they are also worried about 
how it would uh, affect uh, investment and, and the volatility in the balance sheet, etc. So what we really need is, is, is I think, three things from Solvency 2. We need, first of all, to improve and finish the work on capturing the long-term business. And that in itself is a factor of getting the balance sheet measurement right and also getting the, the capital charges right for, for assets. Secondly, we need proportionality to work much better. I mean, Solvency 2 is a, is a huge framework. I think the total, in total, it covers something like three and a half thousand pages. So proportionality is really key, and not just for small companies, but also so larger companies can can apply estimates and uh, avoid unnecessary costs where risks and activity are, are are not material. And then I think the third thing we want is let's not uh, change things which work. So leave things alone which are working well. And really, that's where our focus is. Now, in terms of whether we'll achieve that, I think in terms of the long-term issue, there are significant improvements on the table, and, and that's good. There are some also ideas which would undermine those improvements. And so it's all a matter of whether we get the right combination of improvements, but cautiously optimistic. Uh, at least the intention of the Commission and Council and Parliament, who are all involved in this, they all say the helpful things. Now it's a matter of making sure the detail uh, delivers on that. In terms of the proportionality, there's a lot of focus on that, and there's some useful proposals, again, which we need to improve, but that we can make some progress there. Um, and then finally, on, on not changing the things which work, unfortunately there, I think there's a lot more changes than we would want. In fact, uh, the Commission decided to not only issue a Solvency 2 directive, but uh, something called uh, uh, the Insurance Recovery and Resolution Directive as well. Both of those run to uh, over 100 pages each. Uh, of changes. And, and so I think there's a lot of things which we don't need changing in there that uh, we're trying to sort of uh, reduce and, and make more manageable. So I think I would say we're cautiously optimistic, but still a lot of work to go to get the outcomes that, that we need, but also ultimately that's what our customers need and, and what is needed to allow us to play our role in uh, in financing the economy, recovery, sustainable uh, recovery, and uh, also, of course, climate change uh, yeah. adaptation. So the right changes will be the interests of our customers and the wider society. Well, you just mentioned a topic that is very interesting to me, and that is climate change. And we see climate developments all over the place. And, and in the U.S. context, uh, the NEIC, the state regulators, recently came out with a disclosure framework, and the Securities and Exchange Commission has a 500-page proposal that the U.S. Uh, market is uh, trying to understand. So there are a lot of things happening, but this is an area where Europe has really been on the leading edge of uh, climate risk analysis and climate reporting analysis. So I'm interested in where you think all of this is going and what is what's going to be the outcome of this a few years from now. Yeah, no, the, the, indeed, this is an activity everyone around the world is looking at. And of course, we also now have the IFRS Foundation also establishing a, a, a new arm to look at sustainability reporting. So it, it, it's certainly a lot of act, activity. But you're right, in Europe, I think, has sort of spearheaded the, the work on the regulatory basis. And I think it's fair to say European insurance groups have, have been at the forefront of, of both concerns and, and activity, particularly in terms of investment, but also underwriting and, and raising the concerns about in terms of climate and, and other sustainability issues. So this is something, an agenda we very much support. It, it's core to our business model. Uh, we, we, we need to keep things insurable. And I think one of the things we stress that it, it, 
we can help in three ways. We can we can help with the underwriting, so the protection, uh, because unfortunately things will get worse before they stabilize and, and maybe get better. And, and people need protection and we can help provide that. We can, of course, provide the, a lot of investment needs uh, in order to fund the, the change uh, towards a, a net zero economy over the next 30 something years. But we can also help with the expertise in terms of risk management, in terms of planning, uh, you know, identifying flood risks, helping to reduce uh, risks and, and build back better and things like that. So we've been very supportive, but there is an absolutely enormous regulatory agenda, which will be very onerous to implement. One of the reasons why we, we've remained supportive of that, of course, we, we don't support every element of it, and we've been very active to try to make sure it, uh, as always, the, the good intentions translate into to good outcomes. Uh, and so we've been very active to try to help shape and, and, and this regulation. But basically, we have a number of initiatives. We, we have a very big thing called European Green Deal, which covers the whole of sort of society and is really designed to get not just insurers and, and other uh, financial institutions doing their role, but really every company. And we very much supported that because we've said that insurers can play a certain part, but we can't solve everything. We need the rest of society to change. We can't invest green and, uh, and sustainable if no one is offering us sustainable and green projects to invest in. So that that's one element. Now, if we come into the elements that really affect us as insurers, we, we have something called the... Uh, uh, we, we have a big set of reporting requirements coming online in 2023. Uh, and this will require us to report a lot of information about our impact in terms of uh, sustainability in general, but particularly climate. We also have the European taxonomy, which you may have heard of, which is the, the one way in which Europe's defining what's green and what's not, and maybe extending that into sort of what's brown and what's amber and all sorts of other details. But we've also been supportive of that because we need to know what's green and what's not. That will also lead to some reporting requirements. Now, all these reporting requirements means we need data from the companies we, we deal with and we invest in. And there's a massive project uh, which is intended to, to supply all this data. So this is the, the maybe the equivalent of what you refer to, but in our case, it's, it's 850 pages. <laughs> so we can <laughs> outdo you there in terms of <laughs> sheer volume. This is going to be covering 189 data points, is it is, was what I've seen in the drafts so far. And those data points will be needed to be supplied by everyone. So 55,000 companies across Europe will need to supply this information. It will need to be in standardized form, machine readable. Uh, and there's a separate project to take all that data and put it into a single database so that people can access it very efficiently. Uh, uh, we've also been supportive of that project because it, it avoids a lot of middlemen, cost, adding a lot of cost to the, the situation. So the idea is that uh, this thing called the, it's called the CSRD, um, and that will produce all the data we and other people need. We will then report that data on our companies that we underwrite and we invest in through something called the SFDR and the taxonomy reporting. And as I said, all this data will go into this big ideal database. And I think that. That is a large part of what we're going to be facing over the next few years. And that, that's going to take quite some time to put into place. Well, Olaf, you're a very busy guy. You uh, obviously have a lot on your uh, plate. There's a lot of issues on Insurance Europe's plate. You've been very gracious with your time. And uh, it has been a pleasure speaking with you today.
Trans America Resources Incorporated is an Aegon company that is affiliated with various companies that include, but are not limited to, insurance companies and broker dealers. Transamerica Resources, Inc. does not offer insurance products or securities. The information provided is for educational purposes only, should not be considered as insurance, securities, ERISA, tax, investment, legal, medical, or financial advice or guidance. Please consult your personal independent professionals for answers to your specific questions.